Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 50 years ago, a study started, and the goal was to find and to try to understand extremely smart kids. It was started by a professor at Johns Hopkins named Julian Stanley, who was getting sick of doing research in his office and not coming into contact with real people. So he's feeling this malaise, he's looking for something a little bit more exciting, and he hears about someone named Joe Bates, who's in a freshman computer science class at Hopkins, which did not really make Bates unusual, except he was 12. He was in this class, and he was doing better than everyone else. Camilla Benbow became Julian Stanley's protege and eventually took over his study of smart kids. And the instructor of the class, after he had finished this course, really wondered what in the world should she do with him? She thought sending him back to eighth grade didn't make sense when he was doing as well as these engineering students. But, you know, back in the 1960s, we didn't really know much about how to work with these gifted kids. So she walked down at Johns Hopkins. She walked uh, and met Julian Stanley and said, please help me out. That's when Stanley did something that he would do many, many times again for years and years afterwards. He sat the kid down in front of the SATs. And Joe Bates did phenomenally well on the SAT. So he had him entered into Hopkins early. And another mother heard about this. And she said, my son is just as gifted as this Joe Bates. <laughs> I feel like a whole and, town of people probably said, yeah. my kid is just as smart as that, that guy. Right. And you know how mothers are. Right. That's what Julian thought, too. Yes, yes, mothers, you know, they always overcompensate and think about their children as being so bright and so talented. Right. So he said, well, I'll just put an end to this. I'll give him an SAT, too. He won't perform as well as Joe, and that'll be it. Right. Well, he took the test, and his scores were just as good as Joe Bates. So then Julian had to think, wow, if there are two boys like this who can do this well on the SAT and still be in junior high, how many more are they? They're out there. And so he started the talent search uh, back in 1972. David Lubinsky is a professor who joined the study and ended up marrying Camilla Benbow. They're now both at Vanderbilt. And he remembers what it was like to watch gifted kids come into contact with other gifted kids over the summer when they would gather together to take classes as part of the study. When you see these kids for the first time in classrooms with their intellectual peers, where they don't have to suppress their vocabulary, where their peers understand their humor, where everyone loves to learn so they don't have to hide how they feel about taking math classes or literature classes or physics classes. They just flourish. But beyond the camaraderie and the physics and the literature, the researchers were trying to figure out what made these kids tick, 
no matter what their background was. And many of the kids that we picked up through these talent searches, parents didn't realize how gifted they were. Schools did not realize how gifted they were. It was kind of a hidden talent. And so what I would like to say is that we really were looking for kids who really had these strong problem-solving abilities, irrespective of the curriculum that they had been exposed to. We also did sort of now... You know, it's a retrospective study, but we asked the parents to kind of look back upon, you know, how, you know, their rearing, you know, how did they respond to their child? What did they do? Did, you know, were these flashcard kids or, you know, what have you, you know? <laughs> and we could sum it up that the parents almost uniformly said that we really tried to respond to the child. If the child wanted you know, this opportunity, we try to provide it. Or if they were interested in puzzles, we got them puzzles. Or if they loved books, we got them books. But we didn't force them. And for example, it was so interesting, we compared them to kids who were, we looked at the kids who were really exceptional high scores on the SAT and compared them to the kids who were more towards the lower end of the SAT. But they were all gifted, but you know, separated. And it was interesting to see that the parents of the highly exceptionally gifted kids didn't feel the need to control TV or anything like that. And remember, this was a long time ago. So, you know, you didn't have computers and things like that to worry about. But it was, they didn't feel the need to control TV, whereas the parents of the other gifted, but not as highly gifted kids, had limits on the time that they could spend in front of the television and so on. And what the parents said was that these kids were just thirsty for learning and they didn't need to because they were just responding to the kids' needs. And I remember we had a, a parents who, I remember this couple, the parents were not highly educated and uh, I think they had an eighth grade education. And they said, you know what? He's so much smarter than we are. We, we don't know how to respond to him. But, you know, if he says he wants to do this, we figure out a way to get it to them. Hmm. I, you know, and they said to him, and the mother once said, he talks so much about this math and science. And she says, you know what, I could care less. But he's interested, so I listen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I keep, and I humor him. Right. And, I, you know, so I would like to say is that these, you know, these kids... They really are, can be found everywhere, and that was our intent, to find them, even in these places that often these kids get hidden into. David, that sounds like it speaks to the nature versus nurture question, because if all you're doing is responding to your kid who's saying, um, can I get more you know, books about science, or can you get me more puzzles or more ways to build things or whatever, and you're not even initiating it as a parent, that sounds like at least at this, you know, pretty young age by junior high, there's a lot of nature in here, a lot of sort of natural thirst for learning that, that parents didn't even necessarily create. Yeah, there's a there's not only a thirst for learning, but there's a lot of nature and nurture in terms of their motivational proclivities, what students are passionate about. You know, nowadays there's a lot of talk about math and science and STEM careers. But in our ever-increasing technological culture, mathematical reasoning is becoming more and more critical for not only STEM but other domains. 
all these kids pretty much at summer residential programs have laptop computers that they're carrying around with them. And over the lunch period, it's just kind of fun to walk around in the lunchrooms and you'll see some kids looking at scientific discoveries. You'll see other kids reading the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) They're all over the board with respect to their interests. And we try and cultivate that. But what I'd like to add to that is that these these kids do have a, you know, have a thirst for learning. They're very passionate, have a lot of zeal. But, you know, that can easily be snuffed out because so many of these kids were just so bored to tears in the regular Hmm. classroom. And so what you need to think about it is nature and nurture working together. And if we don't nurture those talents and those proclivities that they come with, they diminish over time. So I want to get back to that question of how you nurture, nurture it. But let me talk about what you found. I mean, following people for over 40 years is an incredible thing. It's really rare. What did you find um, when you followed some of these incredibly smart 11-year-olds and then tracked them down decades later? What were they doing? Does, you know, does early success lead to later success? Absolutely. Overall, they do. I think that... If you look at these individuals, and I keep calling them kids, even though they're 50 years old, because I remember them as kids, you know. (laughs) But, you know, we have data on them at, you know, 12 or so, and then at 18, 23 to mid-30s, and now 50. And you know what? Overall, as a whole, as a group, they do really well. But what we found was just making sure that kids are challenged. And they can be challenged in so many different ways. But those kids who were challenged they tended to do better in later life, even though all of them as a whole, there's great variation, but as a whole, everyone was doing exceptionally well. Hmm. And I would say that when you look at the individuals who have participated in these talent searches that are now conducted by Hopkins, Duke, Northwestern, and so on, uh, you know, they, they, they identify about 200,000 kids a year. And then there are programs and summer programs and academic year programs that are designed for those kids. If you look at some of the top innovators and the top names in this country, many of them have participated in these programs. And I can't name out names because they're confidential, but you can just going to have to trust me that these, these are names that you would know. <laughs> well, it has been discussed, I think, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, mm-hmm. did one of these programs and Lady Gaga did. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, so some of them, I think that's right, are sort of on people's tongues. You know, these are the names that we know or that, that yes. are tastemakers or change the business world or whatever. That's correct. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Camilla Benbow and David Lubinsky, both professors at Vanderbilt, about a nearly half-century-long study on extraordinarily smart children. Um, Camilla, when you think about brilliance and like what you have learned from studying brilliant people, um, what's a belief that you think is commonly held, but you hear it and you think, like, that is just not right? You know, there is this concept out there that a lot of people talk about, a threshold effect on ability. Some, many people believe, and, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has spoken about this, but lots of people have spoken and said, oh, you know, after a certain point, And more ability doesn't matter. You know, yes, you need to be above average, but 
beyond that, other factors are more, are important, like hard work, and critical, right? Hard work, yeah. you know, and so on. And it's not that that isn't important, but what we have seen is that if you hold all these other things constant, more ability is better. Hmm. So a lot of the kids uh, that you came into contact with would be taking like high school classes, sometimes college classes when they were still in junior high. David, I wonder if there's a downside to that kind of age mismatch where, you know, you're just not at the same place, like maturity wise, that the other people in your class are at. You know, you you always have to work with the individual child as a group. The transition seems to be easier for girls than boys because they mature a little earlier. But really, the best practice indicates that these kids, and you can't always do it, but they need to be with their same age intellectual peers. That's what's important. But yeah, the point is, even if they are with older kids, many of these gifted kids actually prefer to have friends who are a little older. So sometimes, you know, yes, the ideal is to have kids who are the same age who are also gifted. But if that ideal can't be met, and you look at the gifted children and who they like to play with and be with, they like to hang out with kids who are a little older. Uh, because they're they're a little bit more similar to them. Camilla, let me ask you a little bit about nurturing kids. If if somebody's got a really talented kid and sort of putting them on the right path to do something with that talent, I mean, it seems like in the last few decades in both the U.S. and Europe, we've seen a pulling back uh, on gifted and talented programs, uh, whereas in Asia there are more and more of them. Is it good? that we have pulled back on gifted and talented programs and and sort of putting those kids in a separate track? What do you think? I think it's sad. I think that our knowledge-based economy, highly technological economy today requires high levels of talent. And I think that if you think about how we're going to be competitive in this world today, we got to be a country that has the best ideas, and we also have to have a country that you know has a strongly strong and well prepared workforce. I think that not nurturing all the children in our society and letting them go to the as far as their talents will take them is is a mistake. And I think that we have pulled back, and I think. I think not only is it an individual loss, because I think these individuals will get lost and get bored in the system, it's also a societal loss. These are the people who are going to transform society. You mentioned names already of individuals who have had impact, and we could mention other names and other contributions that they make. But it isn't just an individual loss. Our society depends on developing these talents. We don't want to be a country where the ideas are in some are being created in other countries and our people here will have to work for their ideas and develop their ideas. We want to be a place that continues to have the great ideas and transformations. And most of those ideas will come from kids who were identified as highly gifted. So it's in our best interest to nurture those individuals. Now, I would say that there is a difference between nurturing and trying to create a gifted child. 
And I and that's what I warn against. Not pushing, not pushing your parent, kid too too hard. Right. It's one thing for parents to be responding to their gifted children, and giving them what they crave and desire and need. But it's another thing to be pushing them and forcing them to do things that go against their grain. Hmm. I see parents maybe pushing children to do things and not because they have a love or a passion for it, but this will make you look good in an admission process for college or for a job or what have you. When parents invest too much of their own ego into the development of their children, that's when it gets a little dicey. Yeah. Camilla Benbow and David Lubinsky are co-directors of the study of mathematically precocious youth, which spanned almost 50 years. Camilla and David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. On our Facebook page, we've got a spatial reasoning test for you, which is not as well known as many other tests. But researchers say that spatial reasoning has been overlooked for a long time as a key predictor of intelligence, especially in fields like engineering and architecture. The test is at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. for a quick dip into history for the story of a kid who almost made it into a genius study but didn't. Now, this study began long before the Johns Hopkins study that we were just talking about. It started at Stanford in the 1920s, and it missed two Nobel Prize winners, one of whom, a guy named William, has, I can pretty much guarantee you, changed your life. William became a physicist and joined a team at Bell Labs in New Jersey which was a storied place for scientists. It brought together a lot of the great minds of the day. And William's team worked on a project that I'm sure they thought was important, but they would have no way of knowing how important it was. The project was to make a better vacuum tube amplifier, which was used for transmitting radio signals, telegraph signals, had a whole bunch of other uses. So they tossed ideas around, they built on each other's thoughts. By the end of the 1940s, they came up with an invention that made possible the modern electronics industry the transistor. William Shockley shared the Nobel Prize for that invention. And right around that time, he decided he'd move back to California, which is where he'd grown up because his mother's health was failing, which meant that he started working with silicon in a part of the world that would soon be named after that element. But back then, back in the mid-50s, the area around Palo Alto and Mountain View, that was mostly a bunch of fruit orchards. Also around that time, Shockley started having more and more trouble getting along with people. He could be mean and arrogant. He left his wife while she was recovering from cancer. And he started arguing about race and intelligence, questioning whether some races might be less smart than others. Pretty quickly, Shockley was skewered in the press. The public was finished with him. Even his family largely grew distant from him. Someone who had been famously passed over by a study of brilliant children was ultimately shunned by society because of his own ideas about intelligence. When he died in 1989, the man whose work made possible every single electronic device you own, who helped create the transistor, was a pariah. His children, reportedly, knew he passed away only when they read it in the newspaper. 
from PRI and WGBH Radio. I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. There's not a lot that the right and the left had in common during the 2016 election. But one thing that was swirling around on both sides was the idea that something bigger was going on than just a normal election. Some people thought, and this was making the rounds even if you did not hear it, that electing Hillary Clinton would mean the country would be under martial law. Other people thought that Donald Trump's election was the beginning of a fascist takeover. You had people who thought the Democrats were rallying millions of ineligible people to vote. Now, you could look at it that we've got a country of crazy conspiracy theorists, or you could look at it that somewhere in there, there is a kernel of truth. And these sorts of theories are not unique to the election. A third of Americans think that climate change is a scientific conspiracy. A similar number think that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor in advance. And just shy of that, about three in 10 Americans believe that vaccines can cause autism. Rob Brotherton is a psychologist and the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. He says these theories have a special resonance with us. Vaccines, for example, have had conspiracy theories attached to them going all the way back to the smallpox vaccine. The rumor there was that uh, taking the vaccine may make you grow horns and start behaving like a cow because the vaccine was derived from cows. Brotherton says even after years of studying conspiracy theories, it's still amazing to him how many people believe in them and how much these theories shape our lives. It comes as a surprise because we have this stereotype of conspiracy theorists as, you know, this weird fringe of people, a handful of people who live in basements and wear tinfoil hats and have strange ideas and make strange posts in capital letters on internet forums. That's really not the case. There are a few of those people. But when you think about a conspiracy theorist, you should think of just your friends, your family, people you see on the street. Basically, everybody is potentially a conspiracy theorist. You mentioned some of the surveys and polls. And I should say it depends exactly who is asked and when they're asked and how the question is asked. But there are many examples of conspiracy theories that are surprisingly widespread. So what are kind of the essential qualities, if you had to boil it down, to a conspiracy theory, to like what it is? So there are different qualities we could look at. One quality has to do with the, the assumptions that these claims are based on. One important assumption is that nothing is as it seems, that there is always something more going on. There's something we're not being told. And so conspiracy theories, they'll say, like, even if some conspiracy has come to light, has been proven, the conspiracy theory will, will move the goalposts. And they'll say, well, of course we know about that. But what's really going on here? What aren't hmm. we being told? Hmm. That's one feature to do with the, the assumptions that you base your worldview on. Uh, another characteristic would have to do with the conspirators, the alleged conspirators. So for one thing, they're unusually sinister, unusually evil. But for another thing, they're unusually competent. They're just unusually good at what they do. Again, we know that conspiracies happen in the world. People plot and they do illegal things. But they're usually not that good at it. It's hard to get away with a conspiracy, especially an elaborate, complex conspiracy resting on a lot of things involving a lot of people. People just aren't that good at keeping secrets. And so for a prototypical conspiracy, it will be saying that the conspirators are unusually good at conspiring. 
So as academic researchers have looked at the sort of vulnerability that we have to conspiracy theories, what is kind of the science behind how these theories get to us and sort of get, you know, into our brains? So the general psychological approach has been to to try and isolate some of the biases that we have wired into our brains and see whether they play a role in conspiracy theories. And there's some good evidence that at least some of these biases do. One of the biases that I write about in my book is called the proportionality bias. What that is, essentially, is just the idea that when something big happens in the world, we look for a proportionally big explanation. Or on the other hand, when something relatively small and mundane happens, we're satisfied with small, mundane explanations. And so in the real world, there's really no better example than the assassination of JFK, this huge world-changing event coupled with a relatively small, insignificant explanation. It was a lone gunman, just right. as one guy right. got up, did this, changed the world of changed the course of world history. That's not a satisfying explanation in terms of this proportionality bias. And so perhaps somebody comes up with a hmm. bigger explanation involving this grand conspiracy involving, right. you know, other elements of the government or the mafia or the Illuminati or, you know, whoever. Right. That seems like a more intuitively fitting explanation. It's a big explanation for a big event. So that's one real world example. Another bias that has been researched is something called the confirmation bias. And this is a great example of something that we're all doing all the time. This doesn't apply only in the context of conspiracy theories. Generally, the confirmation bias is that once we form a hunch or once we have a belief, then we seek out information that is consistent with that. When we come across information that's consistent with it, we take it on board pretty unskeptically. If we come across anything that goes against our hunch or our belief, then we subject it to much more scrutiny. And so we're just reinforcing our beliefs all the time. There was a nice study from 1995 which involved the JFK assassination. The researcher recruited participants, some of whom started believing that there was a conspiracy behind the assassination, some of whom doubted that there was a conspiracy. And the researcher presented everybody with the same bundle of information, this ambiguous packet of information. Some of it supported the conspiracy theory, some of it went against the conspiracy theory. And so what you would expect if everybody was purely rational and evaluated evidence objectively is that people would become less sure of their belief because they're being exposed to this ambiguous information. But that's not what happened. In fact, everybody just became more extreme in their initial belief. The people mm. who started believing it was a conspiracy, they read the information that was consistent with that. They took it on mm. board, information which went against it. They kind of disregarded or they said that's flawed. So they became more convinced of that. But the conspiracy skeptics, the people who disbelieved the conspiracy theory, they did exactly the same thing. They read the information that was consistent with that. They took it on board, disregarded the rest, and they became more sure of their position as well. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Rob Brotherton, the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. Um, and to push this history back further, you say that, I mean, for thousands of years, it's not like the Internet age or something that people believe conspiracy theories in, That, but for thousands of years, people have believed conspiracy theories. Yeah, we can see evidence of this going way back to like ancient Athens and Rome, if you look at the speeches, political speeches from back then and plays that people were writing, conspiracy was an important theme in a lot of that. And we can look at examples like the Great Fire of Rome as well, I think is a wonderful example. 
almost 2,000 years ago now, a fire swept through Rome, destroyed a large part of the city. And at the time, people who were thinking about this, they blamed it on the emperor, Emperor Nero. They said that he had had people start this fire, that he was celebrating while it was going on. You know, that's where the phrase fiddling while Rome burns comes from, because people claimed that he was dancing and singing on the roof of the palace, watching this fire burn down his city. And again, it's surprising how similar a theory like that is to ideas about 9-11 being an inside job today. The idea that somebody in a position of power, the last person you would expect to want this thing to happen, was in fact the mastermind of it. What is interesting to me is then how how these kinds of conspiracy theories can impact real life. And I didn't realize, for example, that like Hitler believed in conspiracy theories. Timothy McVeigh believed in conspiracy theories. A, a lot of people who have taken real action, you know, not not rumored action, but real action, you could trace some of what they believed back to conspiracy theories. Yeah, this is one of the most worrying sides of conspiracy theories is that they can influence people's behavior. They can influence people's choices, how they want to live their lives, what they want to do. And if you accept the premise that the government is up to something awful, that they're behind some conspiracy, or not necessarily the government, but any group, if you think there's a conspiracy going on, if you genuinely believe that, then you can see why it would become your duty to do something about it. And so people like, you mentioned Hitler and Timothy McVeigh and some other people, they've had these ideas about conspiracies and they saw it as their duty to stop this. Hitler is probably the best example. It's had obviously the most disastrous, destructive consequences. And most people point out that Hitler, he cast the Jewish people as like vermin, these low-down people not worthy of being considered human, but he had a paradoxical view of Jewish people. At the same time, he saw them as this metaphysical enemy of the Aryan people because he believed that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy going on to enslave the rest of the world, essentially, this Jewish world conspiracy. And so he saw it as his, as his duty to put a stop to that. How, how widespread was that belief? Well, you know, in the, in the 20s and 30s when sort of leading up to his own uh, taking power and prominence? It was surprisingly, terrifyingly widespread. A lot of it was based on a document called the Protocols of Zion, which was a pamphlet. It was published around the turn of the 20th century um, in Russia and France and didn't really get a lot of attention until in the aftermath of the First World War. And then this thing began to spread around Europe And it claimed to reveal this world Jewish conspiracy. It claimed to be the the notes of a meeting among the elders of Zion, the elites of the Jewish conspiracy, planning world domination, essentially. And looking back at it, it's this tawdry little document. It's obviously a forgery. We know that now. But people at the time, they genuinely believed this. They believed this was a real thing that was happening, this Jewish conspiracy to overthrow society. And so a lot of people thought that something had to be done about it. Um, how do you possibly debunk something like that? Like, how do you sort of stop people if you see sort of where they're heading towards with that sort of information? Well, this is difficult. It's it's hard to change somebody's mind at the best of times, even if you want to try and convince them that your favorite brand of coffee is better than their favorite brand of coffee. Right. People are kind of resistant to that, right? When it comes to conspiracy theories, it's infinitely harder because part of the logic of conspiracy theory is that any evidence can be taken as evidence for the conspiracy. 
if there's evidence that seems to be consistent with it, well, you know, that's perfect. That obviously supports the conspiracy theory. If there's no evidence at all, well, that is consistent with the conspiracy theory because it's being covered up, right? right. The conspirators are doing their job. <laughs> right. If there's right. evidence right. that goes directly against the theory, if somebody's trying to change your mind to convince you it's wrong, well, of course, they're working for the conspiracy or mm -hmm. they've been duped by the conspiracy. And so anything can be taken as evidence for the conspiracy, which makes it very difficult to persuade anybody who really believes it that it might not be true. So I'm going to take the other side of this for a minute. If someone had said to average Americans in 1970, you know, I believe President Nixon and his administration are going to bug a whole bunch of his enemies, uh, hire people to break into the Democratic National Committee, use federal agencies to essentially spy on his enemies, a lot of people would have thought, that person's a conspiracy theorist. But in fact, that person would have been right. Uh, so how do you debunk conspiracies if like once in a while, something like Watergate comes along that makes people think, see, I've been telling you this kind of stuff can happen uh, and it can happen. Well, this is an extremely important point is that we don't want to just dismiss any claim of conspiracy on the face of it just because it claims conspiracy. Because we know conspiracies happen in the world and Watergate is a perfect example of a conspiracy that extended to the highest levels of the United States government, even involving the president in some capacity. As you say, before there was compelling, conclusive evidence of this, it would have sounded like a conspiracy theory. And there were people, uh, editors at the Washington Post, above Woodward and Bernstein, the journalists who uncovered this, who prior to there being really conclusive evidence, they said, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Maybe we shouldn't run with this. We shouldn't publish it. And obviously, if they had have won and the story hadn't gone ahead, that would have been bad. We wouldn't have known about this real conspiracy that was really happening, potentially. So we don't want to dismiss every claim of conspiracy. But there is a line somewhere, or at least there's a spectrum of claims that are worth investigating, that they might turn out to be true. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are claims that have been so thoroughly investigated and debunked already that it seems like it's not worth thinking about that anymore. So give me a sense of how um, technology and the internet affects this welling up of conspiracy theories. I feel like we have, since the election, even before the election really, um, been inundated by conspiracy theories. Here you are, you've been studying this for years. We seem to be in this time where these things are just popping up everywhere. What are you seeing? Well, it certainly seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like conspiracy theories are everywhere, much more so than before. It does. It does. But people have been saying this for a while. In the 1950s, 1960s, and 70s, people were saying this is a golden age of conspiracy theories. There have never been more conspiracy theories than before. So that should raise our skepticism, first of all, I think, that people are often inclined to say that we're living in, you know, the, the ultimate times for X, whether it's conspiracy theories or whatever. There, there is a little bit of data on this. There's a really clever study that was designed by political scientists at University of Miami, Joe Yusinski and Joseph Parent. They wanted to look at this question, have conspiracy theories increased over time? And they wanted to look at it over a fairly long time period, like 100 years or more. And so what they did, which I think was really clever, is they looked at letters to the editor that were published in a couple of national newspapers from a period from the late 1800s up until early 2000s. 
what they found is that it was surprisingly stable. They kind of expected to find an increase when the internet came about or, you know, in response to economic times, economic downturns. Maybe people talk about conspiracy theories more. Maybe people talk about conspiracy theories more under certain uh, government administrations, Republican or Democrat, more than others. They didn't really find evidence of any of that. It was mm. pretty much stable over this period of 100 years or more. So that should raise our skepticism even more, I think. But the answer, I think, is that we don't really know. We don't know what's happened in the last few years. We don't really have data on this and social media, Twitter, all this fake news on Facebook and things. Maybe there are more conspiracy theories around, maybe. But on the other hand, maybe there's more counter-conspiracy theories around. Maybe there's more people debunking conspiracy theories as well. Maybe there's right. more information out there right. in general. Right, right, right. But the proportion of anti-conspiracy information has increased just as much as the proportion of conspiracy information. Hmm. How has this changed, like all this study that you've done about conspiracy theories and... And then obviously you've looked at conspiracy theories or things people believe that were conspiracy that actually did turn out to be a conspiracy. How has this changed how you like think about information that you consume now? Uh, if anything, I've become much more sympathetic to conspiracy theories, or at least to the place that they come from. It might not sound like it because I've, I, I probably sound fairly critical of them. And I am, you know, I don't necessarily believe them, but I... I've become much more able to understand where these things come from in terms of our psychology, in terms of our fears, suspicions, doubts, the things that we all possess, that we all think about. I think it's it's understandable why some people buy into these claims or at the very least why some people respond to them, whether they believe them, whether they just entertain them as a possibility or whether they disbelieve them entirely. I think it's it's become easy to me to see why so many people respond to these kind of claims. Rob Brotherton is the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. He's a psychologist and a science writer. Rob, thanks for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If you want to read more about conspiracy theories, we've got a list of the top 50 pop culture conspiracy theories compiled by New York Magazine that's at our website, innovationhub.org. If you're not in the car or not at home and you want to take our stories with you, just grab our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Tom Gilovich has spent a lot of his career thinking about what makes some people wise and other people not so much. He's a professor of psychology at Cornell University, and several years ago, he was asked by an insurance company to do a study with a pretty simple question. Could you save 20% of your income at this point in your life? These are all people doing pretty well, making over $75,000 uh, a year at that time. This was probably 15 years ago. And a lot of people thought they couldn't do that because by getting you to think about can you save 20% of your income, you've got to think, what am I going to give up now? 
what am I losing in order to do that? And a lot of people said, well, I'm not sure I could do that. Think about whether you could do that. Could you give up 20% of what you make? Not everyone in the study, though, was asked the same simple question. Some of them were asked something just a little bit different. Another set of respondents were asked, could you live on 80% of your income? Now, of course, if you're saving 20%, you're living on 80%. But that focuses the keyhole on something very different. What are the things that I truly need right now, not what are the things I'm uh, giving up? And a much, much higher percentage of people said, yeah, I could do that. Same question, essentially, but with a change in emphasis and completely different answers. As Gilovich did his research and he started piecing together the last few decades of other people's work on wisdom, and I'm not talking about IQ scores here or test scores, so not intelligence, wisdom began to seem to him like the ability to see a problem in multiple ways and to pick the approach that most benefits you and others. So here's another example of making a wise choice. Say you've saved up a pile of money to take a vacation and you've got two options in terms of how to spend the money. You can take a pretty nice vacation that lasts 10 days, or you can take a six-day vacation that's more luxurious. What do you do? If you face this dilemma, gee, a longer vacation would be good, but I don't have enough money to have that long vacation and have a place to stay right on the beach, uh, etc. But I could do that with uh, a shorter trip. The research literature is very clear on this. Take the shorter trip, make sure you do something nice on the, on the last day. But wisdom goes beyond tips and tricks. Gelovich was interested in what gave some people a sense of how to deal with particularly consequential decisions. In a book that he co-authored, The Wisest One in the Room, Gelovich starts off with a story of General Dwight Eisenhower. It's 1944, just before the Normandy landings, and Eisenhower is going around a room of troops, shaking people's hands and silently connecting to each person. I asked Gilovich why what Eisenhower did has been viewed by history as wise, as opposed to smart. Eisenhower and General Montgomery, who led the British forces, had a complicated relationship, might be described as a rivalrous relationship, and Eisenhower had given Montgomery the honor, the privilege of briefing the officers about what the invasion was going to entail. And apparently he did it brilliantly. Montgomery was a smart person with a real command of the operation. And so you could imagine a someone who wasn't wise trying to meet Montgomery step for step. And instead of trying to do that, instead of trying to outdo him, he did something very different. He attended to the human needs of the officers and said, I just want one thing I want to add. I just want to walk around the room and shake the hands of all of these brave men who are uh, about to lead tomorrow's invasion. And you say there are a series of politicians who are actually very good at being the wisest person in the room and understanding, you know, how you work the room, even though there's a diversity of viewpoints. Um, and someone like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, again, maybe not the person with the highest IQ, but great at understanding like how you negotiate those different politics and those different viewpoints. Yeah, I, I think you know the question really gets at, again, uh, this enduring question of exactly what wisdom is. Again, it's not intelligence. We stake the claim that you can't really be considered wise unless you're wise about people, and, and Roosevelt certainly was. Being 
intelligent about other people is a key component of wisdom. Being oriented toward the practical implications of one's actions is also a component of wisdom. And thinking of the long term is a component of wisdom. And so we end the book with the discussion of the extraordinary actions that uh, Nelson Mandela took to guide South Africa's independence, uh, something that was really quite tenuous. The Afrikaners, uh, had, this was not a welcome development for them. A number of white resistance parties developed. Uh, at one time, it looked very possible uh, that there would be uh, a very violent civil war. And it was his actions very much oriented toward the long term that steered that country uh, away from civil war. And when we see, it's the same kind of thing we see celebrated now in the hugely popular play Hamilton of the celebration. Um, I'm going to show them how to say goodbye. Washington not hanging on to power, recognizing that for the, although that might have been good for the United States in the short term, for the long term, setting this precedent of, no, you serve for a certain period of time and then you walk away. That's looking toward the long term, certainly been healthy for this country. And we see time and time again where initially well-meaning politicians, so let's say a colony overthrows colonial rule, someone comes in, seems like just the right leader for the time, and they just can't give up power because the current situation seems like, hey, if I just stick around a little longer, we'll be able to get past this. But then by the very nature of hanging on, they're setting a bad long-term precedent. So uh, let's step back for a minute from the political stage and go back to some of those uh, kind of individual wise strategies that we were talking about before along the lines of like vacationing or saving money. One of the pieces of research that most surprised me is that wise people know we all like to be engaged in something more than we like to relax. Uh, and I think what's really interesting about that is that a lot of people think, boy, if I could just go on vacation, like if I could just quit my job, I would be so much happier and life would be so much easier. But in fact, people are happier if they're not kicking back all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the reasons it's it's easy in a way to get confused about happiness is because it's confusing. That is to say, uh, when we talk about happiness, we're really talking about two different things. What are our individual moments like? And when you think about kicking back, you might think, oh, that's an easy moment. That's a pleasurable moment. And that's true. You string together lots of those kicking back pleasurable moments, however, and then you put it from the perspective of the second component of happiness, which is the evaluative self, that you look back and say, what has my life been about? You look back on those moments, you go, hey, I didn't really do anything. Um, and so when we say we're, we're happy, it's really two things. One is our moment-to-moment -moment experience, and the other is the statements that we say to ourselves about what we've just experienced, the meaning of our life, and so on. And it turns out when you're striving for things, you're totally engaged, and that engagement is pleasurable, so you take care of the moment-to-moment -moment part. Although sometimes that moment-to-moment -moment engagement, like mountain climbing, for example, is actually miserable. But when you look back, hey, I've, I've summited that right. mountain, and you have a, a sense of satisfaction that's incredibly gratifying. And so it's easy to get confused because it's easy to mix up those two different components of what we call happiness. 
Now that you've spent a really long time thinking about wisdom, looking at all the research, doing a lot of it yourself, is there anything when you think back that you think, this was a moment when I wish I had been a lot more wise? (laughs) Yeah, well, it really goes back to the very last question you raised about moment-to-moment pursuit of pleasure versus uh, striving for things. And uh, when I look back on my life and think, well, wait a minute, I, I... Spent all those years sort of playing wiffle ball on the beach. That was fun. <laughs> but uh, And maybe it developed some motor skills that are useful. But, boy, I'd really like to be able to play a musical instrument now. Why did I not spend any time in the childhood doing that? Or why is the only foreign language I can, quote, speak uh, is Latin? Why did I do that <laughs> rather than learn a living language? Looking back, I wish I had known how powerful this idea of we're, we're happiest when we're pursuing things was, and I would have spent a little less idle time earlier in life. I'm sure that's a pretty common regret of a lot of folks. <laughs> Tom Gelovich is the co-author of The Wisest One in the Room, How You Can Benefit from Social Psychology's Most Powerful Insights. He's also a professor of psychology at Cornell. Tom, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you, Kara. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also have production help this week from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. Feel free to give us your thoughts and suggestions for topics that you'd like to know more about. We are on Twitter at iHubRadio. We're also on plain old email, innovationhub at wgbh.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1